Last for a king. Uh, so today we're looking at chapter 6, and we'll read through to chapter 7, verse 2. So hear the word of God. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he dealt with severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, on which there has never been, come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm, but if not then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua at Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages, the great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? 
And to whom shall we go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. You know, one of the things that the Bible uh, teaches over and over again, from one end to, to the other, is the, the blessing of God's presence. Okay, the blessing of being in God's presence. Uh, God, of course, is everywhere, and yet... The Bible also speaks about God's immediate presence, his personal smiling face presence uh, that you can experience. And to have God's personal presence, that is the greatest blessing there is. That is what life is all about. Uh, and so many of the Psalms really get that across. Um, just some examples, the end of Psalm 16, it says uh, that in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. The end of Psalm 73 says, But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge. And how many of you have found comfort in those words of Psalm 23? You know, that even though we go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are with me. It ends by saying uh, that I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so we're seeing that God's presence uh, is really the goal of our existence. Where is life supposed to be going? God's presence. The house of the Lord forever. Uh, it's actually God's presence. That's <clears throat> to dwell with Him, that is the greatest joy. It's the only true security that lasts uh, it's the never-ending pleasure and happiness. And that's all found in God himself. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. <clears throat> and we're in this section of 1 Samuel that does focus on God's personal presence as represented by the Ark of the Lord. Uh, if you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, <clears throat> the Ark, if you're wondering, it was a wooden box about um, this big, uh, by about that. And uh, it was overlaid with gold, and it was designed to look like a footstool that belonged to a king's throne. So God was enthroned above the ark. Uh, you can see it's an imaginary throne because you're seeing the footstool, <clears throat> but God, he, he's enthroned in heaven. And it's like his, his feet are touching the earth. That's kind of the idea. Uh, it's to communicate to the Israelites that God is among them, as their king. He's ruling from heaven, but he's with them uh, in this way. <clears throat> and uh, we can see in the Bible that to have God in their midst, that was, that was the whole point of God saving them from Egypt. You know, the, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. They cried out to God. He, he freed them from slavery, but he didn't set them free just so they could go off and you know, do whatever they liked. He freed them so that they could be in a relationship with him, so that he could be at the center. 
dwelling in their midst. That was the point of salvation. It's actually the point of saving us today. Why does God save us? So that we can be brought into his presence, so that we can have fellowship with him, this relationship with him. I mean, think of the Garden of Eden. That's what God created. That was the whole point of humanity, to dwell with God. That's why he created humanity. It was lost at the fall. You know, the people were kicked out of the garden. Salvation is all about God bringing us back in to experience the blessing of his personal presence. <clears throat> and uh, we come to this passage in 1 Samuel 6, and what we actually see is that God's presence, as wonderful a blessing as it is, it can actually be a big problem, a very big problem. And we see that in this passage it's a problem for two very different kinds of people. It was a problem for the Philistines, and it was a problem for the Israelites. Uh, to put it another way, it was a problem for the outsider and the insider, or the believer and the unbeliever. Problem for both of them. God's enemies, the Philistines, God's own people, Israelites, both of them experienced God's presence as a major problem. And so we've got to look at that and go, why is God's presence a problem? And what can be done about that so that it's not a problem for us? How can we be sure that his, his presence is a blessing rather than a, a threat? So let's follow the teaching of this passage and we'll discover why. Uh, the first section runs from verse 1 to 12. <clears throat> and here we see that God's presence was a massive problem for the outsiders, for the Philistines. Uh, it says in verse 1 that the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And uh, that, that, that means that, remember um, in chapter 4, Israel, they lost the ark. You know, that represented God's presence. They lost that. Why did they lose it? Well, if you'd gone and interviewed one of the um, Israelites the day they lost it and said, you know, what happened? They would probably say something like, well, you know, we're in this war with the Philistines and we needed God's help, so we thought we'll bring the ark out and uh, that way God would have to deliver us because there's no way he'd want to lose his own ark. And so we thought it would work and it didn't. The Philistines won, we lost the ark and that's all there is about it. But we actually know the, the real issue uh, because the passage showed us that what had really happened is that God's people had turned away from the Lord. They'd broken the covenant and therefore God allowed them to, to be sold into to, well, to defeat. And he had left them. The caption of the day was the glory has departed from Israel. So the Philistines, they captured the ark. Uh, they initially saw that as a trophy of war. They put it in their temple of Dagon and uh, you know, they thought Dagon's the greatest, we're the greatest. And then everything went wrong, <laughs> went wrong for Dagon, uh, but it went wrong for the people because God's presence among them was horrendous. Uh, it says his hand was heavy against them. Uh, tumors were breaking out. Uh, we learn in this passage that mice were ravaging the land. People were filled with panic and terror. People were dying everywhere. And so God's presence was a major problem for the Philistines. This was because God was showing them he's no trinket. 
Okay, he's no trophy of war. He's the true and living God who cannot be messed around with. And so after seven long months of all this trouble, the Philistines decide we have to get rid of this ark once and for all. We've got to send it back home. But they want to make sure it's going to work. Okay, because God's hand was against them. They, they, they want to make sure if we send the ark back, that's actually going to get him off our backs. So they call in their religious experts, their priests and diviners, and they say, what do we do? And the priests and diviners, they say, well, if you're going to send the ark back, make sure you send it back with a guilt offering. And a guilt offering, what that showed was that they're acknowledging that they were at fault, that they have offended the God of Israel, and that they need to do something to make that up. You know, offer a payment to appease God, to turn his anger away from them. And uh, the, the um, payment that they come up with, <clears throat> it's actually quite laughable because um, they say, you know, what do, we, what do we give God? And they go, I don't know, what about some um, tumors? <laughs> what about some um, golden mice? It's almost like they're thinking, well, God gave us tumors and mice, so let's give some back to him in gold. You know, hopefully that'll get him off our backs. And uh, so they, they go about that. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> the crazy thing is, um, if they actually knew God, they would know that that's offensive to God, that those things are considered unclean. Uh, it would be almost like, um, you know, if you want to make up to a, a vegan and you take them out to a steakhouse for dinner. That's, that's sort of the idea that's going on here. It's because they don't know any better. These are Philistines, pagans. They don't know God. So they're just guessing. They're, they're doing the best they can to um, appease God. And uh, that's why verse 5, it actually ends with them saying, if we do this, perhaps, see, perhaps, we're not sure, perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Uh, the one thing they do know is this. They've heard the reports of what happened in Egypt long ago. And they heard how Pharaoh thought that he knew better than the God of Israel. He tried to ignore God and what happened to him? It was an absolute disaster. And so the, these priests, these experts, they say, whatever you do, don't be like Pharaoh. Do not harden your heart. Uh, take this God seriously. They don't want to make the same mistake uh, they want to make sure they, they do whatever they can to get this God off their backs. But they're still not quite sure. Did you notice that? Because when you get to verse 7, they set up this, this little test, this test to make sure, is this really God's hand that's against us? Or is this all just coincidence? You know, things happen, plagues come and go, mice um, come and go. Uh, is this God's doing or is it just coincidence? So they come up with this test. And what they do, they take the, the ark and the gold offerings that they've prepared, they put them all on, an, uh, on a cart, they hitch the cart up to two cows, and these cows, they've never been hitched up to a cart before. And these cows have just calved, so they, they take the calves away from them, they lock the calves back up at home. In the opposite direction is Beth Shemesh in Israel, and everyone knows that under normal circumstances, what are these cows going to do? 
they're going to go back to their calves, right? I mean, that's if they can work out how to move with this cart stuck to them. They've never done that before. They're most likely going to get all tangled up. One will probably want to go that way, the other one will go this way, and it would be hilarious to watch. Um, but one way or another, these cows are going to get to their calves because every instinct in them <laughs> will want to go to the calves. They will smash the cart up if they have to to get to their calves. Everyone knows that. Unless, of course, divine intervention comes. <clears throat> and that's what happens. Have a look at um, verse 12. The cows <clears throat> went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. I don't know whether that means they were happy or sad. Most likely sad, because their calves are back there. Uh, where are we? Uh, they turned neither to the right nor the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So the, the Philistines, they're watching this, and it actually looks like an invisible hand is just driving these cows. You know, the way a, a child gets a toy car and drives it across um, your nice shiny timber wooden floor, putting dints in it. But th th it looked like the cows were doing that that an invisible hand is driving them home. And so coincidence is obviously ruled out. This is nothing other than the hand of God. And so the, for the Philistines, uh, they had learned the hard way that God's presence is a massive problem. And they did everything they could to get rid of it. Everything they could get, do to get rid of God, to get God off their backs. But one thing they got right was they took God seriously. That's actually the point of this section. The key verse in this section is verse 5, where if you have a look, in verse 5 they say that you must give glory to the God of Israel. And we've been learning over the last few weeks what the word glory means. It means weightiness. The glory of God is God's weightiness, that he is a big deal. He, he, you have to take him seriously. Okay, you can't take God lightly because he is weighty. And the priests of the Philistines, who really didn't know God, they were saying, you must take this God seriously. Don't be like Pharaoh, who thought he could take God lightly and just ignore him. Whatever you do, don't do that. Whatever you do, Take this God seriously. Give glory to the God of Israel. And do you know that's the lesson that we need to grasp? It turns out we can learn something from the pagans after all, the Philistines. We can learn something from them. Give glory to God. Isn't that the thing that all of us need to hear? Isn't that the number one problem in our lives? If you really think about it, why is it, why is it that we can know God exists, we can know that he is big, <laughs> we can know that he is the only one who really matters, and yet we can live day after day after day as if he's not even there? See, the Philistines have nailed it. Give glory to the God of Israel. They've nailed it. And, and what we see is that the Philistines, these, these unbelievers, 
these ignorant people, they are actually more in line with the truth than I am on some days. Do you see that? Okay. <clears throat> are they more in step with the glory of God than we are? That's what this section is setting up. And the reason it's setting that up is because it's about to go and look at God's own people <clears throat> and how, and how uh, things have been going for them. So let's have a look at uh, God's presence among his own people, the insiders, the believers. And that's from verse 13. Uh, now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. Uh, so they, you know, they look up, oh, God's back, you know, in a way. Uh, God's presence represented by the ark, it's back. They thought they had lost it. They thought that was it, that they were on their own now. And here they see God himself single-handedly has triumphed over the Philistines and he's come back to them. And they are over the moon. It was a bad day for the cows, though, because not only have their calves been tied up, <laughs> but they've now um, offered as a sacrifice. Uh, it's part of the celebration that God is back. This is a, you know, it's like a massive party. God is back, yeah. This is the happily ever after ending that we all love. You know, God has triumphed and he's come back. Trouble is, it's not the end of the story, because then we read what happens in verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Now, a lot of you are probably wondering, what is going on there? What's wrong with looking at the ark? And I actually, I double-checked the Hebrew because... Um, I want to know, what's actually, what did they do wrong? They looked at the ark. And do you know that's exactly what the Hebrew text says? They looked upon the ark. Some translations say they looked into, <clears throat> but it's definitely they just looked at. They looked at the ark. I mean, how could you not look at the ark? It was a gold-covered box. Do you know when you tell your children, don't look over there, that's all they can do. That's all they want to do. And so surely the Israelites couldn't help but look at the ark. What's wrong with looking at the ark? Why did God kill 70 men? Uh, 70, there's not even 70 men in this room, I don't think. Why did God kill 70 men just for looking at the ark? It actually goes back to um, God's law. <clears throat> uh, Numbers 4. Numbers 4 has all of these instructions about how to transport the ark. Sometimes it needed to be moved, and God gave very detailed instructions about how that was to take place. Uh, above all, no one was to touch the ark. No one ever was to touch the ark. Okay, there, was, there were rings attached to the side that had poles threaded through them. Specially designated priests were set apart to carry those poles. Okay, because that way the ark, no one is to touch it. But it also says no one is to look at it which meant that if it ever had to get transported, 
that the, um, the high priest would first of all go in to the place where it was kept in the Holy of Holies and he would cover it with this special covering that they had made, um, especially for that occasion. And uh, the key uh, verse in Numbers 4 is actually Numbers 4 verse 20 where it says that they shall not go in and look on the holy things even for a moment lest they die. So that was in the law. And uh, I don't know, maybe some of you are thinking, well, what, hang on, what about the Philistines? Surely some of them looked at the ark. And how come they didn't die? Well, we don't know that for sure. We don't know if they looked at the ark. We don't know if they died. Maybe some of them did. But even if they didn't, the point that's going on here is this ark has come to a place called Beth Shemesh. And Beth Shemesh, we know from Joshua chapter 21, was a uh, Levite town. Okay, it was a town uh, in the um, tribe of Judah that was set apart for Levites to live in. Levites were people who served as priests. They were the people who knew the book of Leviticus inside out and the book of Numbers, where you have all these commands about how to, you know, how to be priests, how to interact with the holy things of God. So they knew this inside out, but they had a heart that said, you know, who cares? We can do what we like. We can treat God however we like. They looked upon the ark. And, and maybe today you're thinking, well, it all sounds a bit over the top. It all sounds very harsh. Uh, it's just a little broken rule. It's just a look. But we're seeing here that there's actually a deeper issue behind it's not just a broken law. Okay, yes, a rule was broken, but it's much bigger than that. It's a much bigger issue than that. Because all of the laws in, in Leviticus and Numbers, what all of those laws were communicating was that God is holy. God is holy. And God's holiness, it means that he is so far above us means that he is so distinct from us and that he is so pure and magnificent. He's so distinct from us that none of us, no one is worthy to look upon the Lord. Remember when even Moses said, show me your glory. And God said, no one can see my glory and live. Uh, we read from Isaiah 6 at the start of the service. And remember there was those um, seraphim or those angels. They had six wings. Two were for flying. Two covered their feet. And two covered their faces. Now why would their faces need to be covered? Because they're in the presence of the one that they proclaimed, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And even those sinless creatures did not feel worthy to look upon or to gaze upon God in his holiness. Okay? That's what God's holiness means. So far above us, we are not worthy even to look at him. See, if we were to grasp the holiness of God, uh, we, we would realize how big and how wonderful he is, that we would tremble before him. To know the holiness of God is actually to know that God is scary. He's not someone you can take lightly. 
To grasp God's holiness, it is the same as recognizing his glory. See, that, there's that word again, the weightiness of God. It's to recognize the weightiness of God, to tremble before him. And when you recognize God's holiness, his glory, that puts everything else in perspective. It helps us to see ourselves as we really are before God as very small, as just creatures, as so dependent. Okay, we have no claim on him. God's holiness actually shows how filthy we are, how unacceptable we are in his presence. Okay, if, we, if we could grasp the holiness of God, all of that would be so clear to us. Now, if we had a better grasp of God's holiness, we would not be shocked at all by hearing 70 men being put to death merely for looking at the ark. Because what are they doing? They're not recognizing the holiness of God. They're treating God lightly. What they were doing on that day at Beth Shemesh was exactly what they did when they lost the ark in the first place. That day they dragged the ark out into the battle, thought, well, we can get God to do what we want. We can push him around, twist his arm, get what we want out of him. They didn't recognize God as holy. And that's why verse 19, it uses that word, a great blow. God struck the men with a great blow. That's the same word that was used in chapter 4 when God said he struck, a, there was a great slaughter. Great slaughter, great blow. It's the same um, words in Hebrew. <clears throat> and so here we see that this is, this is God's own people. These are not ignorant people. These are believers. And yet look at what God's presence has done for them. It's a great problem for them. At this point, the way chapter 6 is written, it's setting up a contrast between the Philistines and the Israelites. And at this point in the story, the Philistines are looking a whole lot better than the Israelites because even though they had no idea, they treated God far more seriously than the Israelites who knew everything about, or everything they needed to know about God, and yet took him so lightly. Anyway, the lesson of the great blow certainly wasn't lost on them because in verse 20 we read the men of Beth Shemesh saying, uh, this is the men who weren't killed, obviously, uh, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? See, they finally get it. God is holy. You do not mess around with him. You take him seriously. They get it, but they also don't get it because it says... They asked another question, and to whom shall he go up away from us? Okay, we've seen this before, haven't we? When the Philistines had the ark in Gaza and uh, things went horribly wrong, what did they do? They palmed it off to the next place. And now the Israelites are experiencing God's holiness, God's wrath, and they do exactly what the Philistines did. They pass it off to the next place. <laughs> uh, what is going on? And if you look down in, verse, um, in chapter 7, uh, verse 2, it says, From that day the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim. So that's where they took it. A long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. 
So you're at this point where Israel and God are at this kind of very awkward relationship. Is he with us or not? Okay, where do they stand with him? But the point is very clear. God's presence, represented by the ark, is not to be taken for granted. God is not to be trifled with. We cannot treat him as if he doesn't matter. We can't treat him as if, you know, she'll be right. Uh, God is not the easygoing chummy mate that we can have on our own terms. That, that should be very clear from this passage. I know our inclinations always want to think otherwise. Uh, we should not hedge our bets thinking that uh, God is this nice, tolerant fella. In the end, he just accepts everyone as they are. That's clearly wrong when we actually listen to what he reveals about himself from this passage. He is holy. He is holy. He is glorious. We cannot take him for granted. We cannot underestimate him. And so I, want, just want, I want you to examine your life for a moment. Can you see in your life a tendency to, to take God lightly? You know, to treat his commands as if they're optional, as if it doesn't matter whether we break his commands or not. See, do you recognize the holiness of God? Do you see how serious it is that he is there? And that actually leads us to a third point. <clears throat> see, we've seen that God's presence was a problem for the Philistines, a problem for the Israelites. But third, we actually see God's presence is a problem for everyone. And it comes out in that question, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Who is able to stand? See, that's the question that we all need to face. It's the question that we all need to feel. We need to feel the angst of that question. <clears throat> in fact, I'll put it to you that you actually haven't encountered God personally. You haven't come to know him as he is, as the holy God, until you have felt the angst of that question for yourself. Okay, have you got to the point in your life where you've asked, yeah, who can stand before this God, this holy God? Or more to the point, how am I able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Have you felt the angst of that? Because when you know God as he really is, in all of his glory, that, that is the question. That's the question that we all need to face. That is the question that will be the subject matter on Judgment Day. Okay, who is able to stand? That's the issue. Who can stand before this God? <clears throat> and uh, what is the answer then? Well, ironically, the question that the men of Beshemesh were asking was the question that God had already answered, and the answer was right there on top of the ark. Okay, because remember this is the ark, it's a golden covered box. Inside the ark are the Ten Commandments, two tablets of stone. Those Ten Commandments, that's God's standard of holiness, and that's the standard that we've all broken. We've all broken God's commands, which means none of us are holy. 
And uh, that's our problem. That's why God's presence is a problem for us. That's why we can't just go into God's presence. That's why we can't have the blessing that we were created for. That's lost because of sin, because of the broken commands that, our, that we do in our sin. And uh, that's the bad news. That's why God's wrath is against us. That's why he's scary. But here's the good news. The good news is that on top of the ark was a lid. But it wasn't called a lid. It was called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. And and that's the place where once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in to the Holy of Holies with the blood of a sacrifice. And he would take that blood and he would sprinkle it on this ark, on the mercy seat. And when that blood was sprinkled there, that symbolised that an animal had been punished in place of the people. And so with that blood spread across the mercy seat, underneath is the law, the broken law. What is that blood doing? It's covering over all that the people had done wrong. And so you, know, you, could, you could see that the symbolism, what is this? This is the God, the King of glory, the Holy One, looking and seeing that the law that was broken, it's covered over with shed blood. The blood turns away his anger from his people. They are now accepted because of the blood of the sacrifice. Now let's fast forward uh, another thousand years from the, um, that day at Beth Shemesh. And you've got the book of Hebrews telling us that everything that happened with the ark and the sacrifices and all of these things, all of that was just a pointer to the once and for all sacrifice that God would provide in his own son, in Jesus. And Hebrews says, we read it earlier, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. See, built into all of that sacrificial system of the Old Testament was a temporary uh, nature to it. It was never the ultimate thing. It was never going to fully resolve their sin. It was only ever show and tell. It was only ever a pointer to the day when God would provide the once and for all sacrifice that would take away our sin forever. And that, of course, is Jesus. That's why in Hebrews 2 it says that Jesus had to be made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make, here's the word, propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation. That's a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath. And that word propitiation, it's actually the same word that's translated mercy seat in the Old Testament. And so what that's saying is that the mercy seat on the ark, that was always pointing to what Jesus would provide on the cross for us. And so now we see that it's through the death of of God's Son His blood shed for us. That blood turns away God's wrath. That means we can now come into God's presence fully accepted. Okay, that's how you can have the blessing of God's presence. That's how God's presence is no longer a problem but a a blessing for you. Now, sometimes people say, 
that's ridiculous. Surely if God wants to accept us in his presence, he can just do that. He doesn't need this bloody sacrifice. Surely he can just have us in. Anyone who says that has no idea about the holiness of God. Okay? God's holiness means that he cannot accept anything sinful in his presence. He can't. And, and look, God cannot change his holiness. That's just the way he is. But what he can change is us. He can change, he can do something about our sin. And he has, and he did it at the cross in Jesus. And so if you have Jesus, if you put your trust in Jesus, then, well, Hebrews 4, it says that we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. We can approach his throne with confidence. Now remember, what, what was the ark? The ark was the footstool to the throne of God. And so what Hebrews 4 is saying is that Jesus is the one who gives us full access to that throne. We can come not with fear and, and thinking, are we going to get struck down? No, no, with confidence. We can come in, we can be with God. We can be near to God. You know, remember, in your presence is the fullness of joy. That is fully accessible to you only through Jesus his blood shed for you. And I wonder, do you know that blessing for yourself? Do you know the, the, the freedom, the joy of unhindered access to God through Jesus? And do you feel now the seriousness of, <laughs> the seriousness of, um, of God's presence? Now, for, if we're saved by Jesus, it's not just God's... We need to take God seriously because he's holy... But we need, to take, we need to take God seriously because of what he has done for us in Jesus. Jesus had to give his own life for us to bring us in. So now we take him seriously on two accounts, who he is and what he has done for us. And so that, that's the story of the ark. That really completes that section on um, the ark in 1 Samuel. And it's just over and over again telling us, God can't take God lightly. Okay? He is the king. He is the holy king. Okay? We, need to, we need to tremble before him because he is the holy God. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this reminder that you are not uh, like us, very different to us, Lord. And we see uh, in your word that we're confronted with your holiness. And Father, we um, pray that we would see clearly, that we would realise what that means and that we would fear and, and tremble before you. Uh, but we thank you, Father, that it's not the fear that, that runs and hides, but a fear of, of awe, of respect, of seeing how great you are. And Lord, we pray that, that that fear would be in our hearts, that the fear of the Lord would drive our lives uh, so that we, that we fear disobeying that we would see that as not a light matter, uh, but something that we would want to avoid. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us a renewed uh, vision of you in all of your glory. Uh, we pray, Lord, that we would also see the wonder of, of the death of Jesus for us, of realising that that's the only reason that we're allowed all the way in to have you as our God and to be near to you. 
Uh, we thank you for all of your promises that are tied to your presence, Father. Uh, may we cling to those through all of life. Uh, we pray especially for those who are grieving today, Lord, that the, the comfort of your presence would be real to them and that it would enable them to be able to, to know joy even in sorrow. Uh, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.